this is what I really want, Keith. I would love for the people who think that our picks in quick hits are ridiculous to say something before the game, say, rather than wait until after the game to say, hey, that was a that pick didn't age well. It's like, hey, your predictions, the pre means before. Maybe we don't learn that in school these days, but that's what pre means. I do think that's part of the territory. It's been an ongoing thing since the day we started. If you want leeway credit to um, to to call our call us on the mat for when our picks miss, and we've been doing this so long, we've missed hundreds of picks probably over the years. Uh, yeah, you should put yours out there first, but it's uh, it's part of the territory. People are gonna make fun of us, and I just say, look, man, if you know, join the club. I've I've missed so many picks over the years because I was brave enough to put mine out there, and, and that's how it works. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Hello and welcome to the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, our Friday podcast, the one where we're previewing week seven of the NCAA Division Three football season. Yeah, we're on the, uh, the down glide path into Selection Sunday, which is coming uh, in just about a month from now. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Keith McMillan, the former player and longtime co-host. And we are basically doing right now the Monday introduction, because I'm about to say this is Around the Nation podcast number 251, the one where everyone else learns how to pronounce Allianz. Pronunciation 101. Budavistic. Monon Belt. Budavistic. Gallardi. Teal. Buhlenberg. Allianz Field. Yeah, it looks like Alliance. It's Allianz Field in St. Paul. That's where uh, a bunch of eyes in NCAA Division III football are going to be this weekend for the annual Johnny Tommy game. Maybe the second to last annual Johnny Tommy game. Of course, the game between the rivals in the Minnesota in the MIAC, which at least for another month or so holds the record for the uh, most fans to attend a single NCAA Division Three game and Keith, a game that uh, has outgrown its its campus environs a little bit, at least in terms of uh, when you try to play at St. Thomas. It's been a uh, an amazing run and really interesting to see this game move off campus into a couple of sites over the last few years. Yeah, and there are certain rivalries where this can work because most of these great rivalries in D three do have a economic center where a lot of the students who graduate end up. So. In uh, Wabash, DePaul, it's Indianapolis, Randolph-Macon, Hampton, Sydney, it's Richmond, and Ithaca, Portland, maybe it's New York City. But in in St. John's and St. Thomas, a lot of graduates do end up in the Minneapolis area. And so it's very easy for them to get to campus uh, or to get to the game when it's not on campus. And, and St. Thomas is much more interested in hosting the game off campus than St. John's appears to be. But when you look at, at what they did a couple of years ago with 37,000 at Target Field, um, you know, it seemed like a, it, it's obviously a, a worthy idea and something that um, that is that holds element of the rivalry, no matter how big it gets. It, um, you know, it'll never be the same as it is on campus when you take it off campus. But it it the the spirit moves. It moved to, to Target Field and I think will move to Allianz just fine. And and Pat, I'll just note that I was one of the people mispronouncing this about four weeks ago or six weeks ago on the podcast. So uh, I've learned as well. 
Keith, and I know I've told this anecdote before, but basically you talked about the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I run into people on both sides of this rivalry all the time. When I go to church on Sunday morning after this game on Saturday, you know, there's a reasonable chance that, uh, you know, the service is going to be said by uh, someone who's a professor at St. Thomas and we're going to have uh, a St. Thomas grad I know like sitting basically next to me and I know this guy who's a Johnny grad who sits in the front row it is basically these people these people these people who are these people are all over the place <laughs> I must I must run in the same circles with with a lot of them and I think being Catholic in Minneapolis doesn't uh, doesn't hurt that but it is uh, definitely something where uh, St. John's grads and St. Thomas grads uh, you know work in the same offices uh, intermingle all the time they went to the same high schools in a lot of cases and just went uh, went, went red and one went purple dogs and cats living together mass hysteria but it is one of the big elements of of all the major d3 rivalries that that you know you may be rivals for the years that you're at school but it, it actually stretches beyond that because it, it moves into the alumni world and then it really um, impacts recruiting too where you have players from the same high school teams either going their separate ways or uh, maybe all going to the same school but being recruited by both and so they have some familiarity with each other and then when you know once you make that choice like I, re I remember we had a guy come stay with us when we were at Randolph Macon and, and he chose Hampton Sydney and so of course I didn't talk to him again uh, after he stayed with us until I saw him in a pregame we were what did one of those things where everybody's jawing at each other in the end zone and I saw him and it was like me and him jawing at each other and I, and 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 uh, I was like, I remember you. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a story I have not, uh, I have not heard you tell. Vipperman was the guy's name. <laughs> you're, you're on notice, Vipperman, class of nineteen. I don't know, ninety eight, ninety nine, Hampton, Sydney. I've got nothing for you. Joe Bush is looking for you, also. All right. Um, some of the other games that can kind of, you know, uh, attract this kind of attendance, obviously the Cortica Jug game, because we're about to see it a few uh, weeks from now between Ithaca and Cortland. I would have to say, and I know we've talked about this before, but I would still would love to see Amherst against Williams at Fenway Park. And I would love to see, I would have loved to see, uh, you know, the Cortica Jug game at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse because that's closer to the epicenter of that rivalry. But yeah, this will this will work just fine. I'd love to see Whitewater play Oshkosh maybe at Camp Randall or something like that, or even, you know, in Miller Park, the baseball stadium in, in Milwaukee. I feel like there's still lots of opportunities for some of these one-offs to happen, and I hope that they continue. Yeah, I like the Fenway Park idea. And I think the the thing that has to happen is, you know, you can't stick any D3 game in a giant stadium and have it work. You have to be able to to fill it and you have to be able to transport that same energy that you have when the game's on campus. Take that to whichever stadium you move the game to. So I think that's the case in in Tommy Johnny. And maybe by Saturday night, we'll be calling it Johnny Tommy. Yeah, it's actually, you know, it is Johnny Tommy either way. Maybe it'll go the other way around, right? I knew I'd mess that up. <laughs> it's all right. It's uh, you people who don't know our. Um, it was 40-20 last year. I do remember that. Yeah. Our, and our, uh, you know, our, our theory, our practice here is to take that rivalry and name it by whoever won the most recent game, which is why currently when you're listening to this, it's Johnny Tommy. And if you listen to this late, and things change around, then on 252, you may hear us say Tommy Johnny. I think we'll talk about that game on that podcast. Yeah, I would, I would wager. 
Wait, we don't bet. No, we no, we, we don't bet. There's a bunch of other games to watch this weekend, and we will talk about those coming up in just a couple of minutes. But at this time, I have to remind you that the uh, D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It at GottaHaveItFanFoams.com. I think one of the best things about that this week, Keith, was seeing um, a couple of uh, Mary Harden Baylor fans unboxing theirs on Twitter and talking about them and uh, other people who have ordered them and uh, uh, are looking for them to arrive and seeing some of these things in action in the hands of other people certainly brought a smile to my face. Hey, that's proof that if you sponsor the podcast, you will make some sales. But also, it's sort of a thing we've been saying from the beginning that this is a product by D3 people and, and we should embrace it because um, it's worthy of of our love and attention, that, you know, the product itself. Uh, I think we, we ramble about it every week, but also it, um, you know, it, it comes from us. It's sort of from the grain, so to speak, and uh, I'm happy to see people supporting it. Yeah, a very Division three product. You can find uh, ones on sale already for Mary Harden Baylor, as mentioned, also for Mount Union and for Johns Hopkins and for UW-Whitewater, and for East Texas Baptist. Also for the uh, for the U.S. Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, uh, for Army, the Black Knights. And if you are a school that's looking to have one of these for yourselves, uh, you need to go to gottahaveitfanfoams.com. Look at the, uh, you know, the uh, link at the bottom where it says Alumni Associations Love Us. See what we can do for your school. Click on that. See what they can do for your school because, you know, this would look great say as uh you know with uh with a wabash uh wally wabash is the actual name of the guy right i hope so because yes that, that would be super weird if not uh with a sju or a ust i think you know what those stand for with any of a number of ncaa division three schools uh there are plenty of uh, opportunities out there they are looking to get these officially licensed fan foam wall signs into the hands of your fans so go to gottahabitfanfoams.com to find out more now on the d3football.com around the nation podcast i'm joined by bob ritter the 19th year head coach at middlebury and we definitely appreciate you joining us on a uh on a on a on a early morning recording session so we definitely appreciate that and thanks for your time on the podcast this week Sure, Pat. Uh, glad I could do it. Tell us a little bit about uh, Division Three football in Vermont. I guess, actually, first of all, I want to know uh, what the what the autumn colors are like. What's it like up there right now in Vermont? Uh, it's peaked this week. It's been uh, it's really been gorgeous. Uh, the weather has been uh, really nice. Also, we've had some nice, cool uh, mornings and warm days. Uh, so the colors have really come out, and it's uh, very picturesque. Is that uh, good for fans to come out to the games, or does that keep people away, I guess? Um, it makes getting the hotel rooms tough, I'll say that. Uh, but I think it gets people to come to the games. We have such a, a beautiful stadium with panoramic views you know, of the mountains and of the area, so I actually think um, it probably gets people to the game. Well, the reason why we're talking to you specifically is because you guys are off to a 5-0 and start, so there will certainly be a lot of interest in your guys' games this weekend because you know the team at the top of the NESCAC right now is not Trinity, who it's been often over the course of the past several years, and it's not Amherst. It's you guys, of course, along with Wesleyan, your opponent this season. But uh, tell us a little bit about your team's 5-0 and start so far. Um, well, it's been 
uh, you know, every game except one has been, uh, you know, down on the wire. And uh, our guys have, you know, really shown a lot of grit and uh, fortitude and, um, you know, have played. We've had to play the, the full 60 minutes and in, in Amherst's case, uh, into a couple overtimes to come away with the win. So, um, you know, it's really been an exciting season in that sense. And, you know, I think our guys really understand, um, you know, how tough it is in this league and, and how every game is going to be a battle. And, um, you know, fortunately, we've been able to, to find, a way, find a way to win in the end. Who are some of the big names for you guys? What's working well for you right now? Um, well, certainly offensively, uh, our quarterback, Will Jernigan, kind of makes us go, and, and he's just uh, really blossomed into a great leader and, and a great player for us, uh, both throwing and running. Uh, Pete Huggins has done a great job for us at linebacker. Um, again, you know, kind of this is his first year playing, starting and playing a lot, um, you know, and has really done a nice job in, in leading uh, the defense. Uh, Marty Williams is a, a defensive lineman, nose guard for us, who who really is a senior captain. You know, has done a done a great job uh, for us. Max Rise, kind of our, our leading receiver, him with Frank Casolito have, have been some big targets for uh, for Jernigan. And then we have a freshman, Alex Muldron, who um, has really come into his own and and uh, has done a great job for us coming in as a freshman. You know, uh, people who don't know about the NESCAC maybe don't know there's some of the uh, unique things about the the conference. Of course, it is a conference that uh, in football does not uh, choose to go to the playoffs. But in the past couple of years, uh, you guys expanded your schedule from eight games plus a scrimmage to nine full games. And now, of course, this is like the third season of that. But have you seen, has there been any change from that? Has it been, you know, how has it changed how things work in, uh, in the conference and in your program? Um, I, you know, I think it, it was a welcome change and, and I think it was the right move. And, and I think everybody's really pleased uh, with with how it's worked. And I, I haven't you know, we haven't seen a, a huge difference in the season. You know, the length is still the same. Our, you know, our, we don't come back any earlier for preseason because of it. Um, so the, the length of the season is still the same. You know, you, you just don't have that awkward um, first scrimmage at the beginning. And, and I think. By and large, most of the guys would have ra- would rather most of the players would rather play that, that game than, than scrimmage anyway. Um, so it's been exciting to to get to play everybody. I think that's an important thing with our league since we can't go to playoffs uh, and we are a self-contained league. That that playing everybody, uh, I think, is a little bit more satisfying now. You know, in the past, you guys would uh, maybe not even play Wesleyan every year. One of those that that would be one of the teams that you would you would scrimmage off every other year. And of course, the conference schedule has completely changed. So Wesleyan not being someone you open up the season with now, you have this big midseason clash. It's the conference schedule hadn't changed in so long, and now this year, obviously, things shuffled up a little bit. So how did that uh, affect how you guys? Does it affect like the cadence of the season or anything? Yeah, it's it's been interesting, uh, and like you said, w- when the uh, league finally went to all league play, it, it had a schedule that had been set forever. And uh, when we played eight games, you alternated the same two teams every year, who you played and, and who you didn't. Um, and then when we added the ninth game, they just kept that schedule and, and added the team you didn't play at the beginning. Um, and this is the first year where the schedule has has been moved around. Uh, and it is kind of funny, you know, I, um, 
doing this for so long, you definitely get into a rhythm of who you're playing and when in that time of year, you know, it's more of a personal thing. Um, and it's funny how that's changed. You're kind of been used to saying, okay, this is, this was always the, the Amherst week, or this was the Williams week, or this was the Bowden week. And, um, and of course that's kind of completely changed. Uh, so that's kind of snuck up on you, but yeah, you know, you have to play everybody and, um, you know, I'm not sure there's a, a better way to do it, uh, than others. And, um, uh, but I think, you know, it, it's kind of nice to, to have a change up. And I think they're going to look to, to kind of rotate the schedule through the years too. Let me ask because, you know, uh, Amherst and Williams and Wesleyan obviously have their own uh, little three rivalry and Colby Bates and Bowden have the CBB rivalry. And I know you guys have um, the, I guess the, the rocking chair game with Hamilton, but do you have uh, one game that you guys really point to and say, this is our key rivalry here in this conference? I mean, I think the, you know, in the nature of the league and the nature of not having playoffs, you know, the whole season becomes a, a playoff, you know, and, and um, each game matters a lot. And I think that uh, for us, you know, our proximity, proximity to Williams and Amherst um, has always made that a big rivalry. And then um, we've kept our last game with Tufts. Uh, which is always a, a big game, and it's kind of nice to play down there because we've got such a big alumni base down there. Um, so, you know, those are big games, and, and the Rocky Chair Classic is a big game. But I, I think uh, the nature of our season, uh, because we don't have that little three or, or CBB, um, you know, every game is a, is a big game for us, and that's kind of one of the things we preach throughout the season is is just to be one and oh, you know, we're looking at next week's opponent and not looking ahead or looking behind. I got to ask about playoffs a little bit. I know these are things that are not in your guys' hands as coaches and that sort of thing. And for the division three fans out there, we all should be fairly happy that the NESCAC has not taken a playoff bid over the last, uh, however many years, because there hasn't been, there's not a lot of room right now right. to add another right. automatic bid, but you know, do you like, do the alumni talk about it? Do the younger players or like the parents of guys you're recruiting talk about it? Or do you hear any talk about, you know, now that the conference schedule or the game schedule has expanded to nine, might we talk about adding a non-conference game or a playoff game or something like that? You know, I think there is a little bit of talk about it, but not a lot. You know, I think that you kind of know coming here uh, as a recruit, uh, what to expect and, and why you're, you're coming to an institution like this or, or a league like this. And, you know, it's going to be a high level and intense uh, football experience. Um, and at the same time, a great academic experience. And, and you kind of know going in um, that there's not going to be playoffs available. Um, you know, and I've obviously coached in this league for a long time. Um, and, the, and there hasn't been playoffs. So I've, I've kind of gotten used to it. Uh, and I've coached sports, other sports that have had playoffs, and, and that's been a, a part of things. And, you know, I think that um, I don't think our guys feel robbed at the end of the season. I think there's always that uh, competitive part of you when you've had a really good team and you've had a great season um, that you'd like to see how you would do and, and how you would play, you know, how it would go at the next level and, and that excitement. Um, but I think our guys – feel like they get enough football and, and it's a, you know, it's a great season. It's an intense season. Um, and, and each game matters a lot because the, the regular season really matters. Um, 
and I, you know, I think guys at the end of the season uh, feel like they're, you know, that they've had a, a full go at it. Uh, but there certainly is that competitive nature when you do have a really good team. You know, you'd love to see how you would do, you know, playing some people outside the league and, and how far that you would go. So, um, but I think that we've all gotten used to it, I guess, uh, from a playoff standpoint. I think the big push for us had, had always been that ninth game. Um, because we just felt that that was really important. You guys, uh, like a lot of NESCAC schools, obviously, and NESCAC uh, sports teams, are kind of a uh, you know a mixture of guys from all over the place. Not just obviously Vermont and New York and and the uh, and New England, but you know guys from New Jersey, bunch of guys from Illinois, bunch of guys from Virginia, some guys from the Carolinas, and then. You know, like I guess a lot of Division three schools like Texas and California guys as well. What's it like recruiting these guys, and then you know, kind of when they get to campus and get to, and get to practice, kind of you know, bringing these guys from vastly different backgrounds and making them into a team. Yeah, it's uh, it's been exciting. You know, I think as um, certainly Middlebury's popularity has grown and our our name is really well known. Uh, we've been able to attract a lot of <clears throat> players from outside the region. And um, and I think that's exciting, you know, and I think it's actually great to see, um, you know, all those different geographic reasons represented in our locker room. And, and they, you know, they bring a different flavor to things. And I think guys really appreciate each other. And, um, you know, I think uh, football is a really big common denominator for everybody, you know, regardless of, of where they're coming from, their backgrounds and, um, you know, their social economic background, their geographic background. Um, you know, everybody comes together in the locker room and, and football is kind of that uh, common bond that, that, that is the starting point. And I think that it uh, is, you know, it's exciting to see guys come together from those, those different backgrounds. And I think football is uh, a, you know, great way to make that happen. Well, it's certainly interesting to hear Bob Ritter talk about the different elements of this season so far for Middlebury. And since uh, the the NESCAC is a little bit topsy-turvy, I mean, Mid- Middlebury's been in the mix previously, but to see this early in the season, Trinity have multiple losses, Amherst has lost a game, and uh, and to see uh, Middlebury and, and Wesleyan be the, you know, the, the teams out in front certainly is, uh, is pretty interesting. But I thought his most interesting insight was something that um, folks around the NESCAC are pretty consistent on and have been for years, but folks around the country don't get quite the same um, sense. And I think that's the the playoff question. And the idea that that the NESCAC, now it plays nine games against the other, there are 10 schools, so you play the other nine teams and that's the end of the season. And, you know, we did it around the nation maybe in, I don't know, 05, 08, who knows. But uh, where where you sent me up to uh, Trinity Amherst game, and I talked to one of the players after the game, and and he said almost exactly the same things. Where like it's it's a super challenging academic environment, and so uh, at that time it was eight weeks. At this time it'll be nine weeks of football. Is uh, is plenty, and you know they're they're going to be get, they get into finals right away. But at the at the same time, as a football player and a competitor you always want to know where you stand. I mean, I still to this day want to know how many points 1997 Mountain Union would have beat 1997 Randolph-Macon by, right? Um, so, I mean, I think it's a thing that um, the NESCAC 
is I guess happy with or is used to. He put he put it in that term. They're used to it. I think I think if the change was ever made to where they were to participate in the playoffs, they would they'd be really excited because it really only affects the one team that makes it. The other teams still get their short nine game season, and um, the one team that makes it maybe plays one extra week, maybe two, maybe three. But you know, very very slight chance that they play five extra weeks but you certainly want to see just uh just how far you can go and i think there have been years you know if we assume really good students go to rpi for just to pick one out of out of uh thin air uh or johns hopkins and those two teams went to the quarters and the semis last year you know why can't a a nescat team go that far And now it's time for our five games to watch, and we're going to switch it up. We're going to send it out to Greg Thomas. Not just the biggest game of the week, but one of the biggest games of the entire regular season. It's the Johnny Tommy game. Number four, St. John's takes on number 11, St. Thomas at Allianz Field in the 89th and quite possibly penultimate meeting between these Mayak rivals. Both teams entered this contest on good form. After a couple of shaky weeks to open the season, the Johnnies have been dominant over the last month, including a 19-0 shutout last week against then top 10 ranked Bethel. St. Thomas, as we all know, was on the losing end of this season's most surprising result to date, but the Tommies have rebounded from their loss to Eau Claire with a pair of lopsided wins against Mayak foes. The Johnnies are highlighted by reigning Gallardi Trophy winner quarterback Jackson Erdman. Erdman is commanding the division's second most efficient passing offense, which is no surprise. Erdman and his improving group of receivers are going to be challenged this week to keep St. Thomas's number two ranked defense on their heels. The Johnny defense has been just about as formidable as their purple counterparts, ranking eighth nationally in total defense. In St. Thomas's lone loss of the season, Eau Claire was able to keep constant pressure on St. Thomas quarterback Tommy Dolan. Dolan will be on the lookout for defensive standout Danny Petrashevsky, who is the Johnnies' chief backfield disruptor with eight tackles for loss and four sacks so far this season. The St. Thomas offense has been typically overwhelming this season and, like their defense, ranks second nationally. The Johnny Rush defense ranks second nationally, and that unit will be challenged by a St. Thomas Rush offense that piles up nearly 310 yards per game. All-American running back Josh Parks did not play last week against Augsburg, and his availability this week will no doubt have a significant impact on the Tommy offense. The very best rivalry games are the rivalry games where the stakes include more than just bragging rights. What's at stake at Allianz Field on Saturday? For St. John's, a win means they will have dispatched their two main competitors for the Mayak Championship and will have positioned themselves certainly for the Mayak Championship and possibly a top seed in the NCAA tournament. For St. Thomas, a win this Saturday keeps their playoff hopes alive and sets up a Week 11 game with Bethel that will have postseason implications for all three Mayak contenders and a butterfly effect through the rest of the West region. This is one of the few D3 games that has truly outgrown a typical D3 game day experience. If you can't be one of the 19,000 or so at Allianz Field, head to the scoreboard page at d3football.com, get your audio, video, live stats links right there, a dedicated device to one of the premier games in Division Three while we still have it. Thanks, Greg. My game to watch is in Vermont, and I'm going to assume you were listening a few minutes ago when we mentioned that Wesleyan and Middlebury are both unbeaten. The Cardinals and Panthers are tied at 5-0 atop the NESCAC. Middlebury is here at this point after surviving in Week 6 as Colby missed a would-be game winner from 32 yards wide right with 22 seconds left, and the Panthers held on to win 27-26. 
Key for the Panthers this week will be whether freshman running back Alex Madgen suits up after he had just five carries last week, all of them on the first possession. Now, Wesleyan's 5-0 has come against Colby, Hamilton, Bates, Bowden, and Tufts. And now the toughest part of the schedule comes up as the Cardinals finish with trips to Middlebury, Amherst, and Trinity sandwiched around a home game against Williams. Wesleyan is paced on offense by a bunch of young players, including sophomore quarterback Ashton Scott. Three of the top four pass catchers are sophomores, and more than half of the team's carries come from sophomores. The senior leadership is on the defensive side, especially among the linebacking core. Keep an eye on this game, at least in between the leaf peeping that you can do from Middlebury's picturesque stadium. Now over to Keith. We haven't talked much about Wartburg, which is 6-0 and and faces 4-1 and Simpson, and I'm not going to hear yet either. Maybe we'll get to that one later on in the pod. Because the classic Wittenberg-Wabash game is this weekend. It is a truly bizarre world. Greg, the Wabash grad, takes Johnny Tommy, which leaves our Minnesota-based voice to preview what to see in New England this weekend besides foliage. And Pat acknowledging the Nescak is more rare than the red, orange, and yellow leaves in Vermont. And then I'll take Little Giants and Tigers right out of Greg's territory. At least we can count on Frank to do an upstate New York thing. Wittenberg, however, appeals to yours truly because teams across Division Three are averaging more than 26 points a game, and the Tigers are allowing less than half of that and just 236 yards per game. Wabash, which has often played this game against Wittenberg, knowing it would likely decide the North Coast Conference, is coming off a stunning loss to Worcester that has helped throw the doors of the conference race wide open. The Little Giants managed just 10 points in the loss of the Scots, and that was the first dud for what had been a pretty prolific and balanced attack. Wabash has won seven straight at home, and they're fighting for their playoff lives already, and three of Wittenberg's wins have been close, so their 5-0 mark could be a little bit deceiving. But pass defense has been a weakness for the Little Giants, which makes this game, which makes this a game in which Robert Frelick can really bust out instead of turning in his usual 220 yards and a score. And now back to Minnesota to hear what Adam has to say. Deja vu all over again? For the second straight season, St. Olaf has run through its first half schedule unscathed. The Oles enter their contest against Bethel, a perfect 5-0. Just like last year, the Royals are coming off for their first loss of the season, courtesy of St. John's. What's different, if anything, this season? The Johnnies laid out the blueprint for shutting down Jaron Rosti and Bethel's offense in a 19-0 shutout. Does St. Olaf have the athleticism to replicate the performance of the St. John's defense last week? The Oles' offense will need to control the ball, something it has done well so far this season. The Oles averaged 6.3 yards per play, and top running backs Caleb Willis and Jordan Embry each averaged 5.6 yards per carry. Sophomore quarterback Lars Prestman has been efficient, tossing 11 touchdowns to just two interceptions. Pressure will be on Prestman, as Bethel's defense allows just 76.4 rushing yards per game and 2.6 yards per carry. If the Royals take the lead early, they will try and force the Oles' offense to be one-dimensional. Bethel's defense has picked off eight passes this season, but has given up over 100 more passing yards per game than it did in 2018, and over 50 yards more per game than it did during a 5 and 5 2017 campaign. If the secondary doesn't show improvement, the 10th-ranked Royals could be upset by the upstart Oles. Kudos to James Killian for leading the turnaround at St. Olaf. It must feel exciting to look at the conference standings in mid-October and see your program alongside St. John's and St. Thomas at the top. The Oles won just three conference games total in the four years before Killian's arrival in 2017. But the second half schedule is once again brutal against the top five teams in the MIAC. Just one win down the stretch will secure St. Olaf's best season since 2012. Rosti and the Royals aim to right the ship and get back on track toward earning a second straight Pool C playoff berth. 
and we'll finish off our games to watch with Frank Rossi. From In the Huddle and D3Football.com, I'm Frank Rossi. While many eyes might be on the Liberty League's Hobart-Ithaca showdown Saturday, the Empire 8 has a big matchup worth discussing as number 22 Cortland hosts Alfred. The Empire 8 has what appears to be a three-way race brewing, but with Brockport idle this weekend, the stakes of this game are very high. The two major strengths of Alfred's game remain their rushing game on offense and the Saxons' ability to penetrate the backfield on defense. Alfred has averaged over 275 yards per game on the ground, and their defense has collected 21 sacks in just five games, including defensive lineman Leo Pamphile's team-leading six-and-a-half sacks. The Saxons continue to rely on quarterback Casey Boston even after a rough game in the team's 27-9 loss in Week 3 to number 9 Ithaca. Boston has averaged just 105 yards per game passing, but the legs of Aaron Griffin have become the focus of the Alfred offense as he has averaged over 131 yards rushing per game and scored a team-high seven touchdowns. For undefeated Cortland, the strengths this season have centered around a balanced running and passing game, with stalwart Brett Segala at the helm passing for 251 yards per game and for 14 touchdowns against just two interceptions. The Red Dragons have given up just four sacks on the season, while the offense has converted 27 out of 30 opportunities in the red zone, collecting 23 touchdowns and four field goals. Defensive lineman Devin Smith will look to camp out in the Alfred backfield as he has five sacks and three forced fumbles on the season for Cortland. The only common opponent so far for these teams has been Morrisville State. Alfred held on to win their meeting by seven points in Week 5 before their bye, then Cortland struggled to shake Morrisville until late, eventually winning by 14 last week. With Alfred having an extra week to mend, this game could be a chance for the Saxons to knock Cortland from the ranks of the undefeated and shake up the Empire 8's opportunity for a potential Pool C bid with both teams still due to face Brockport down the stretch. Back to two guys who know what a Saxon is, Pat and Keith. All right, Keith, it is time for On the Spot. I'm going to put you on the spot for one question and one question only. It is... Oh, this is great. It is guess the attendance at the Johnny Tommy game. Oh, wow. Something I can handle. Well, uh, the Allianz Field could seat 19 and change. Is that right? I actually did not even look it up for this question. I figure you might have to do your own research on the spot right now. I know it's like 19 and change. What I don't know is if it's like... 19 or 20 or 20.3. I don't know. Somewhere in that range is what I'm expecting to make it, you know, the second most attended game in NCAA Division Three history, soon to be the third. But uh, the exact numbers, I'm not sure. It hasn't uh, really been publicized as much as Target Field was a couple of years ago or as much as the folks who are running the Cortica Jug game this year uh, put out a couple of weeks ago about how many tickets they've sold. Well, the seating capacity is 19,400, so I'm going to say the attendance is 19,401. All right. They're going to let some one extra person in somewhere. I think there are going to be a lot of people out front. Um, I believe they're going to run a um, a viewing party outside the game. So if you count that as attendance, it's going to be way over 1,900. I mean, 19,000. Well, I'm pretty sure that Jerry Jones would count that if uh, if and when or when they did that at the Super Bowl a couple years ago, right? Yeah, that's who would count it. And, and uh, I believe they had to pay some uh, some folks who didn't get the, the seats they paid for either. But that's another story for another day. I do remember that where they were like assembling seats or something or putting in guardrails or something like that, like on the like an hour before kickoff or something. I remember that. Yes, correctly. it was some, it was something to that effect. And the, and the, the folks who paid for the to go to the Super Bowl were uh did, did not get the service they paid for let's say or the seats they paid for. 
go figure. You know, of course, this game is uh, much controversial in the Minneapolis St. Paul area because it is in the stadium, which is uh, in which uh, Minnesota United, the MLS team, plays in. That team hosts a uh, uh, an MLS playoff game on Sunday evening, and uh, that was not something that, of course, could have been projected when. Uh, when they agreed to host this football game starting a, a little over a year ago. So that'll be a lot of fun for them. If you follow that and follow division three football, I'm guessing the Venn diagram on that is really small. I would guess that as well. All right. Mine for you, Pat is pretty easy, but I still would like to put you on the spot with a classic pick three winners, three games uh, in ascending order of margin of victory. Three winners in ascending order of margin of victory. So the closest game first, yeah? Correct. Okay. Should we do descending order then? The bo- most boring game first? <laughs> yeah, that probably makes more sense, doesn't it? Let's yes, all right. Pick three games in descending order. By margin of victory. All right. By margin of victory. Well, I'm going to go with Hope Finlandia. I feel like mm. that's uh, that's a pretty good one for a high margin of victory. I also looked uh, briefly or thought briefly about uh, Capital and Mountain Union, but I know that we can kind of count on Mountain Union to do whatever it takes to keep that game around, you know, 66, 70, 72, something like that. And, uh, you know, I don't know about, uh, you know, because that's a home game for Mountain Union, so you could play all 150 guys uh, for hope they are going up to the UP with, you know, a bus of, I'm going to guess, or two buses of about 70 players or something like that. And, uh, you know, even the 70th player on Hope Squad is probably going to have a pretty good time with Finlandia. I base this primarily on the fact that Hope beat Defiance earlier this year by the score of 80 to 6. And I'm expecting uh, something within that range as well. And, and of course, uh, Capital was a 90 to 0 loser to John Carroll last week, and Mountain Union uh, beat John Carroll 37 14 earlier in the season. So, uh, I don't know if there's enough time for Mountain Union to, to add its margin of victory onto it. And, like you said, Pat, I think you're right, they will probably be a little more judicious in uh, in running up the score. But as we discussed on the Monday pod, there were uh, there wasn't a whole lot John Carroll could do to keep the score down. There were five play drives with all run plays, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, it gets out of hand that way. Yeah, but if you're playing the comparative score game, you expect that game to be 113 to nothing or something along those lines. So I need a middle game, and I figure I'm going to have a lot of room in the middle to kind of you know pick and choose because I have an idea of what my close game is going to be. But for my middle game, I'm going to take uh, Carnegie Mellon and Bethany. I know, oh, I have to pick winners. So Carnegie Mellon over Bethany. I figure this game is going to be somewhere in the four touchdown range or so, um, you know, depending on weather and all sorts of other interesting factors. But I think Carnegie Mellon on the road handles Bethany, but not to the tune of 60 some points. And then for my closest game, one of the things I always like to do when I'm trying to pick close games is also pick a game I think is going to be low scoring because that means that, uh, you know, even if it gets out of hand, it might get out of hand to the tune of 21 to 7 or something like that. Exactly or the number I was thinking. 24 to 10. My game for this is going to be, oh, I have to pick a winner. So I got to think about this uh, for an extra half a second. And I'm going to take Kane over TCNJ for my close game of that triad. 
Well, you did a nice job of going off the board a little bit for some games that we wouldn't have talked about otherwise. Well, I actually tried very hard to get games we didn't talk about otherwise because we talked about no games in the first uh, eight minutes of this podcast other than one. So I figured we were uh, obliged to talk about more than just one game this weekend. Now, when you bring 20,000, you get a few minutes on the pod. Absolutely. Uh, that was on the spot. Of course, we also do our spot check where we check on what we did last week in pod 249. And, uh, and last week I picked the rainbow and I made Keith pick a 2006 Subaru or, you know, to put it in more uh, tangible terms, I had to pick a winner for each color associated with the colors of the rainbow plus a bonus game. And then Keith had to pick a winner, which started with each of the letters in the word Subaru plus a game that would finish with a score of 20 to 06. If you don't understand what we're getting at, you need to go back and listen to podcast 249 because we're not going to relitigate the entire UMHB thing. Uh, Keith had options for the letter S. It took St. John Fisher, which lost to Hartwick, but Union beat Rochester. Bridgewater crushed Hampton, Sydney. Austin defeated Millsaps. Redlands lost to Chapman, and UW Whitewater beat UW Platteville. The bonus pick of 20 to 6 was the William Patterson Christopher Newport game, although that ended up to be 34 to 10. No game on Saturday of last week finished with a 20 to 6 score, but two of them finished 20 to 7. So you're saying I got Uberu? Uberu. You got Uberu. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if it were, uh, you know, that old of a Uber ride, I'm not sure that I would have gotten into it. I thought you were going to do sit, Ubu, sit. That's a, that's a really old reference. Woof. Uh, that, uh, for, for the rainbow, for red, you picked the Cardinals of North Central, who cruised past Augustana. Orange was Hope, which defeated Albion. Yellow was Mary Harden Baylor, which rolled over East Texas Baptist. The green of Brockport shut out Hartwick. Wait, Hartwick played twice last week? I don't know, man. I, you expect me to get this? You expect me to get well, all this St. information? Well, John <laughs> Fisher lost to Hartwick, but Brockport <laughs> shut out Hartwick. So hold on. Yeah, you know, uh, I guess we're going to have to spot check my spot check, right? Brockport actually beat Hartwick, and it was uh, St. John Fisher and Utica. So there we go. St. John Fisher lost to ah. Utica. All right. You want me to take the whole thing or just pick it up? Nah, just keep going. I'm going to buzz myself out because I wrote this and I messed it up. <laughs> All right. Well, the green of Brockport did shut out Hartwick. Uh, the purple of St. Thomas did the same to Augsburg, and the blue of John Carroll did all that and more to Capitol. The bonus pick was Western Connecticut, which beat Massachusetts Maritime and finished the complete set. Pat, congratulations. We have some lovely, if not parting gifts, awards for uh, for your perfect uh, pick. It's uh, it's like Rice-A-Roni and then the play-at-home game, right? Uh, I should have got you a box of Lucky Charms. That'd be perfect for a, for a rainbow. <laughs> that would be. And they also, as I understand it, would be magically delicious. And I hear the roulette wheel running there in the background. We have 116 games this week and uh, the random number falls on number nine we had a bunch of high scoring games or a high numbered games for a while and uh this week we're uh, at up at the top of the scoreboard for uh the ninth game on the list is uh, hobart at number nine ithaca so that means that we have to uh of course preview this game that's good you know keith someone should really preview this game don't you think it's amazing uh, I th- yeah i think it would be a good idea yeah, and then uh, we have to come up with a, a rivalry trophy for it, of course, also. Um, you know, Keith, we talked about these two teams a little bit on the podcast over the course of the season. Interesting start to the year for Hobart uh, and, you know, just cruising right now for Ithaca. Yeah, I mean, we know they can score. They they put up a ridiculous number of, of points. They haven't really um, been, you know, been held back in any way. And I think the gamble 
at the beginning of the season was to to take Brockport's All-American quarterback in Joe Germanario, uh, set aside a guy who had started for two years for them in Wahid Nabi, and uh, who's now a junior and, and you know maybe back in the in the starting role as a senior. Um, no, that's a gamble, but the gamble is if you can get just a little bit more uh, out, out of that offense, and, and Ithaca was a team that was um, eight and three last season, if I recall correctly, and then had a couple of close games, including the 10-9 loss to RPI, which is you know more than likely what kept it out of the playoffs. If you could just get a little more out of that offense and, and be the same defensively, they could all of a sudden be a team that does what RPI did in the playoffs, does what Brockport did the year before, and, and make it to the semifinals, and maybe make it further. So that looks like, at this juncture, to have been a very wise gamble. Ithaca hasn't played anything resembling a close game, and Hobart uh, maybe is their, is their closest chance at it for the next couple of weeks. So, um, you know, Hobart has, we've seen them dominate Brockport back in week one. We saw them look not so hot against Union a couple of weeks ago. So, so I mean, for me, taking a look at this game is just wondering, you know, which version of Hobart we're going to get and what kind of effort they'll put forth on the road at Ithaca. Well, I uh, took it upon myself now to come up with the rivalry trophy for this game between the Statesmen and the Bombers, and I thought with the kind of juxtaposition in the two mascots, that we're going to call this the International Incident Cup. You got your Statesmen. Interesting. You, you got your Statesmen. You got your Bombers. I just figured that uh, something's got to give. I felt like you should just give this the Cortica treatment and call it the Hobica game or, or the, the Ithbart game, which whatever one you want to call it. Right. I think after having screwed that up a few weeks ago with uh, whichever game that was, this that was supposed to be Schenectica Cup, and we screwed that up because I th- forgot that um, RPI is in Troy and not in Schenectady. I figured at this point we might want to let those go for a little while. Well, I mean, I think we, we can... Can't mess up Hobart, Hobart and Ithaca, right? They're both in the cities named after the uh, the oh, Hobart's in Geneva. Yeah, the Gen- the Geneva Cup. All well, right, never mind. Let's move on. Time for the five one liners. Uh, we burnt a one liner there in that last segment, Keith. So we may have to come up with something super on the fly. But we're going to start with the uh, Wartburg at Simpson. Yeah, the number 14 Knights have scored 45 touchdowns this season, seven more than their closest competitor, St. Thomas. Uh, they've also played six games. But the Storm will need to play much better than it did in a season-opening 42-10 to loss to Bethel to pull off the upset. we got Misericordia at FDU Florum. Yeah, can't stop, won't stop talking about FDU Florum. Misericordia has three straight one-score wins, while the Devils are 2-2 two and two in games that close, including the two games that got them mentioned on the Monday pod the past two weeks. Coming up next, we've got center at Hendricks. Some of the luster of, on this game came off when center lost three straight one-score games, giving up exactly 20 points each time. And then Hendricks did its part to take the luster off by losing 27-9 to Barry last week. Fans of teams who want a pool C shot should be rooting for center here to knock Hendricks out of the mix. Uh, we've got 24th-ranked Redlands at Claremont Mud Scripps. Every Redlands game is appointment viewing for Pool C watchers as well, especially as long as Chapman keeps winning. And the Bulldogs are in great shape if they keep winning by virtue of the Linfield victory. The defending Skyak champs, on the other hand, are just 2-3 and three and did not look good in a loss to Cal Lutheran last week, scoring just 7 points. And then we're going to finish this off with the bonus pick. It's going to be DePaul at Ohio Wesleyan. And I have to have a thing to say about DePaul at Ohio Wesleyan on the fly, huh? Naturally, we put a lot of focus on the Wittenberg-Wabash game in the North Coast, but DePaul travels to Ohio Wesleyan 
And those are two of the four teams that are three and one in conference trailing Wittenberg. Uh, Wabash and Denison are also included in that group. So right now it's a five-team race in a 10-team conference. The points don't matter. That's right. The points don't matter. It's called being a professional. Points don't matter. You play to win the game. And then I give them points. I don't know why. It's just a gag to tie the show together. Now, if you want to crown them, then crown their ass. Of course, Quick Hits is our weekly Friday look at the upcoming set of games. We've got six people giving answers to six questions to give you some idea of what to expect. Now coming up in week seven, but we're looking back at week six for a moment. And only two games in week six were offered forward for the group as possible games of the week. The majority taking Wesley at Salisbury and the remainder taking Bethel at St. John's. And the Wesley-Salisbury game was definitely the better of those two games for the top 25 team most likely to get upset people keep picking barry and have started picking case western reserve but only greg thomas picked redlands to get knocked off and that was the only correct pick made last saturday which ecfc teams get their first wins of the season well the correct answers were gallaudet dean and anna maria nobody picked more than one of those correctly but ryan and adam and i each had one correct answer we also asked about teams who could see their fortunes change in the second half of the season. Teams who are expected to do better in the second half, that includes Lycoming, which was upset by Alvernia, really unexpected, super unexpected. But George Fox, Husson, Rowan, and Christopher Newport all did pick up wins after tough starts for the season. On the other side, we were looking for teams who would start the second half of the season on a down note, and we had some great picks from people who went out on a limb. Nobody told Greg Thomas he had to pick a winner in the Route 13 rivalry, but he did, picking Wesley to lose. Adam picked Central to lose to Dubuque. Ryan took Westminster to lose to Grove City. Pat picked Puget Sound. But Frank picked against Hobart, and I picked against Chapman, and both won on Saturday. See this week's Quick Hits picks on the website by noon on Friday. I keep wondering if I should change that text. We mostly get them posted by noon on Friday, but uh, that's where you can find our predictions. Back to pass, looking in the near corner for Nap, and it's intercepted! Zahar at the goal line! Returning it to the 30. And now it is time for Keith to give one final set of six predictions. Uh, We're going to go game by game, and we are going to start with Westfield State at Western Connecticut. Let's stick with uh, your pick from last week. We'll go Western Connecticut again. We're going to take George Fox at Whitworth. I've been on the George Fox uh, bandwagon all year, but I think Whitworth is is the team to ride with here. Here's another rivalry game we haven't talked about. Loris at Dubuque. Yeah, the Rock Rock the Rock City Bowl. What is it called? I don't know. Loris plays in the Rock Bowl, but this game is at Dubuque. Gotcha. Well, in any case, uh, Loris has had a, a, has looked okay at times this season, but I think Dubuque's the pick there. Rowan at Salisbury. Got to go with Salisbury. Rowan has really had a murderous schedule when you consider that they've played uh, everyone from Linfield to uh, to Hobart to uh, Widener. Ferrum at Bridgewater. Got to stick with Bridgewater. And Ferrum's been a nice addition to the ODAC coming over from the USA South. But Bridgewater's on a roll. And if you are a savvy user of the website, you will, you will have read the Bridgewater feature earlier in the week. And wrap it up with Olivet at Trine. I like Olivet, actually, uh, on the road in this one, trying uh, after that 51-0 loss to Hope, it is hard to put a lot of hope in, uh, in anything they do. 
And this was the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 251, released on October 18th, 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the weekend. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast that will help other football fans find it and you can leave comments for us on the blog page you can reach us to talk more about division three football on twitter using the d3fb hashtag i'm at d3football on twitter and keith is at d3keith we have a message board devoted to division three sports did you know join the conversation by registering a post at d3boards.com also you can follow d3football.com on facebook the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the other music in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr, Greg Thomas, and Frank Rossi, plus guests Bob Ritter and Sports Information Director Brad Netto for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thank you to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. I thought it funny that uh, in the beginning of that uh, Bridgewater feature that uh, Mike Clark uh, said that it had been a long time since he'd gotten a phone call from D3Football.com. That sounds about mm, right. That, and that's a, but that is a great indicator, right? It is. We used to, he used to, we used to talk to him all the time, and he was great. He still is great, honestly. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, and I'm, I'm not surprised that he would say that. I, I was, I was really happy to see that in the feature. There were times where there was a time where. You know, in that run of playoff games where we were early on in the life of the website and didn't have a lot of money. And I drove down there to do pregame interviews on Friday afternoon and then drove back up to Northern Virginia two and a half hours or something like that in order to save and not pay for a hotel and then go back down there on Saturday to call the game. That is crazy talk, but I have I did a few things like that in my day, so I can't uh, can't knock it. We've got a couple minutes here uh, as we uh, roll out of here. Remind people what your origin story is for the website. Wow. Um, I had a, a good, basically my best friend in high school or one of them uh, had gone to Western Connecticut to be a, to play running back and then it transferred to Rowan. And at the time, Rowan and Mount Union were the two dominant programs in the country. So basically, I reached out to you, which at the time there were two D3 websites or you had taken over the, the one that the Centennial Conference ran? No, there were two of them. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So it was Division Three Football Online yeah. and it was D3Football.com. And so I had reached out to you and said, hey, essentially, I have a direct line to one of the star players in the country if you want me to write a feature. Oh, yeah. By the way i guess i write uh you wrote, and you said eh, i don't know if i ever i don't think i ever even wrote that feature but i remember going to a ursinus rowan playoff game that year um which i believe was coached at that time by paul gunther who's now like the defensive coordinator for the raiders um ursinus lost 55-0 but maybe i sent you a game story and then went to the stag bowl that year uh as a fan and then the next year i think started writing around the region and a uh, year after that, rode around the nation. And uh, at the time, like you said, you know, we're, was willing to drive pretty much anywhere uh, that we could get to in in a weekend to do a game. And uh, suddenly, you know, this journey has taken us to uh, to places like Cedar Rapids and Menominee, Wisconsin, and it's taken us to Redlands, California, and and uh, McMinnville, Oregon, and a bunch of places we never would have gone otherwise. So maybe that's our that's our 250 moment in 251. <laughs> You actually, uh, that that 99 Stag Bowl, you and I called that game together uh, with Rick Seidel, but that was, I don't know if that was when we, the first time we actually 
met in person, but we we did call that game. That was the first of our soon-to-be 21 consecutive Stag Bowl broadcasts. Yeah, and I went to the one the one year I didn't. I guess I was maybe I covered it on behalf of somebody, but uh, in the in the '98 year before I uh, had been to the website. So essentially, I've been to the Stag Bowl every year. It's like it's like Christmas to me. It's like right. It's it's part of. Uh, the, the annual holiday season, and uh, we'll be going back to Texas in uh, in a few months for uh, for the second Stag Bowl in Shenandoah, which is uh, suburb of Houston. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. 